So we know, we know we have these moments in which we know our own capacity for love, our own capacity for clarity. We have these very beautiful experiences and we have to ask ourselves, is it possible to uh, have that be predominant or there most of the time? The teaching of the Buddha, and I think the teaching of all spiritual traditions, is that the love and the clarity is more basic than that which uh, prevents it from manifesting. We may become pessimistic about that perspective and think that the, the difficulties or the conflicts or the uh, grief or the sadness is more basic, but the, basic, the, the, the finding in this tradition and in, in the tradition of meditation and inquiry and certainly what the teaching is from the Buddha, and again, the teachings that we find in other traditions, are that the the difficulties in our life are in some way secondary, and that it's possible to live in a way that we know more and more that quality of open heart and clear mind and courageous action as our basic nature and the other aspects more and more secondary. We could think, to use a metaphor, it would be to say that our minds and our hearts are like the sun. And the sun gets covered over by clouds, but the sun is most basic. And so tonight is really a talk uh, about the clouds and about how to work with the clouds. There's a writing that's been very powerful for me, which I think expresses this um, strong assertion. It's really a strong assertion about the human condition, that the human condition at its most basic is good, is based in love and understanding, and that all the wars and all the conflicts reflect some deep misunderstanding of the human condition and the human potential. And one of the uh, books that's really affected me a lot is a a set of journals from a woman named Etty Hillesum, E-T-T-Y-H-I-L-L-E-S-U-M. Does anyone know her her work? Yeah. She was a young woman living in Amsterdam in the Second World War. She was a young Jewish woman And she kept journals between 1941 and 1943. And it's a powerful set of stories. Eventually, she died in Auschwitz. And her journals begin, she's probably 27 or so. And she's a very very bright, but in some ways, rather superficial young woman. And you can see it in the journals. She's interested in this and that. And... Over the course of the next two years, uh, all of which involves the uh, time of the Nazi occupation, which which started in 1941, or may have started in 1940. I think it started in 40, but the real real, um, development of forced strictures and development of the ghetto and that sort of thing started in, uh, in the summer of 1941, and that's when the journals begin. And over the course of two years, 
there occurs what can really only be described as spiritual awakening in the worst in the worst of conditions. Although, for the first year, they were able to live somewhat normal lives in Amsterdam, you know, with adequate food and parties and all that stuff. And then things started to crack down. And her last journals are from uh, what's called a transit camp at a place called Westerbork on the uh, Dutch-German border, which was uh, not a death camp, not a concentration camp like Auschwitz, but it was a camp where people were interned in not great conditions, pretty bad conditions. There were people dying there, but there were not people being killed. And she writes about those events, and eventually she was deported to Auschwitz. Actually, she had a chance to escape, and her friends made efforts for her to escape, and she chose, um, she chose not to. She chose to stay with um, the people of Amsterdam, and eventually she died. And her journals, especially towards the end, are incredible. They are luminous. They are filled with deep feeling, and they are filled with what only can be described as uh, um, a deep joy coexisting with the very difficult conditions. I wanted just to read you a uh, passage from her, from her journal from this time. This is from the uh, writings from the transit camp. She said, The misery here is quite terrible, and yet late at night when the day is slunk away into the depths behind me, I often walk with a spring in my step along the barbed wire, and then time and again it soars straight from my heart. I can't help it. That's just the way it is. Like some elementary force, the feeling that life is glorious and magnificent, and that one day we shall be building a whole new world. Against every new outrage and every fresh horror, we shall put up one more piece of love and goodness, drawing strength from within ourselves. We may suffer, but we must not succumb. And if we should survive unhurt in body and soul, but above all in soul, without bitterness and without hatred, then we shall have a right to a say after the war. That sense of a joy being deeper than all the suffering was something, it wasn't a set of reflections, it wasn't a set of uh, philosophical assumptions, it wasn't a a tenet in a uh, worldview, it was her lived experience of that, that powerful heart and that clear mind being more basic than the difficulties or the suffering. And so it's, it's actually uh, a good way to approach the, the difficulties that come up in meditation because I can, we can maybe be inspired by that. But the fact is that when we come to a meditation retreat, even if we've had quite a bit of experience, we sometimes experience one or more of the following. We get sleepy. We get irritable. Our minds won't stop. We're full of anger. We want to feel our heart during metta, but we can't feel it. We think that there's something wrong with us. Everyone else here is obviously doing it right, and I'm the only one who's doing it wrong. So there's some kind of there's some sort of self-judgment. We have the thought. What am I doing here? 
I could be somewhere else. I could be. I took a week off from work, and what? A, what? What is this about? You know, I mean, is this a cult or what's 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 going on here? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I mean, from the outside, all these people doing slow walking. I mean, <laughs> I don't know about a cult. It looks to the um, the once. Uh, I, I, I was in Massachusetts at a at a sister center in Massachusetts when the um, Jack Cornfield's uh, Thai teacher came in, Achan Shah, and he he looked at all the people. You know, there was a retreat with a hundred people, all of them doing slow walking meditation in June out on a beautiful field, and he said, "Is this a mental hospital?" <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so it really can. It really can, we can wonder. We can wonder what we're doing because there are difficulties, it's hard, there, you know. Um, you know, if you eat too much, you've got to sit with it the next sitting and it doesn't feel good. So you can't even eat too much as a way to deal with whatever, right? You can't, I mean, it's not a great strategy either, especially the last meal, you know, which is you. <laughs> so, anyway, so, you know, what do we do with this? And the, uh, the approach I want to suggest is that it's very helpful to identify the kind of difficulties which could be called uh, obstacles to that quality of wisdom, the quality of compassion, the quality of courage. To identify the obstacles and actually to have the perspective that the obstacles are actually part of the journey, like the like those mythical tales of what uh, the trials uh, was it the trials of Hercules. Right, you know all the what is it, the twelve trials of Hercules. It's a little bit like that. You know, when we're meditating, we come up against these series of difficulties, and it's very helpful to name them, to see what they're about, and to know specifically how to work with the different kinds of difficulties that we face. That's that's my subject tonight, and I want to work with a classical model, which is called the model of the five hindrances. It's sometimes uh, translated or talked about as the five difficult energies. There are five uh, qualities which arise in our minds and hearts which make it very difficult to see clearly and make it very difficult to feel the open heart. And that's what I want to explore, talking about each of them and specifying some of the ways to work with these difficult energies when they come up. So, uh, the... First of these, I'll, I'll mention what they are. The first of them is some kind of compulsive desire or attachment. The second is some kind of compulsive aversion or pushing away. The third is what's translated as sloth and torpor. The fourth is restlessness and worry. And the fifth is doubt. And these are likened sometimes to qualities that can occur in a pond that make it very hard to see clearly through the water. So that kind of compulsive desire or attachment is likened to colored dye that fills the pond. Aversion or ill will or anger is likened to the water boiling. 
can imagine this as our minds. What's your mind today? Is it dye-filled water? Is it boiling water? Sloth and torpor is likened to the pond being overgrown with algae. The fourth, restlessness and worry, is likened to the pond being blown around by winds. And the quality of doubt is likened to the pond being muddy and turbulent. Sort of a lot lot of stuff getting pulled up from the bottom. So let's explore these. And I also, I brought in the book of qualities again. And a lot of the a lot of these qualities are uh, personified, so I'm going to read them for each of them. So here's something that comes pretty close to uh, the first it, which is uh, which I've called compulsive desire or attachment. Would you like to sit here? Compulsive desire or attachment, which uh, the closest in this book that it comes to, or that comes to it, is greed, which is very similar to. Greed is something that's kind of compulsive. It's a kind of compulsive grasping onto something. So here's, here's greed. Greed is lonely and impulsive. He eats his food quickly. Can't remember what it tastes like. <laughs> he wants to make things stand still so he can understand, but he is always running somewhere himself. He was very cold as a child, and he still fears that he will never be warm enough. Greed is a tyrannical boss. He needs a reason for everything. He used to disguise his temper with a thin layer of politeness. Since he has become rich and famous, he doesn't bother with amenities. He masks his fear of women with contempt. He exports nightmares on the international commodities market. An advertising executive turned pornographer of the soul. Mm. She was a little more intense there than wisdom, compassion, and courage. So that's, that's a, an introduction to the first of these so-called uh, hindrances or obstacles. And we have, to, we have to, part of our work in meditation is getting to know all of these uh, difficulties or hindrances or obstacles quite intimately. More intimately than you would like to know more intimately than you signed up for. A little bit like cod liver oil, that's good for you. you have to, we, study these, we study these things. So what is the nature of compulsive desire or attachment or greed? We looked at it some yesterday when we were looking at the teaching of the four truths. Uh, first of all, it's somewhat compulsive and unconscious. Look at, we can look at ourselves when we really, really want something or when our, our mind is working in a compulsive way. We want something. It could be food. It could be wanting the bell to ring. It could be uh, wanting something elsewhere in our lives. There's something about that compulsive uh, quality which is somewhat unconscious and, and out of control. The problem is not with desire, as I mentioned last night. The problem is with the belief that satisfying the desire will lead to happiness. 
And that's an important distinction. Desire in itself is not the problem. The problem is the belief structure that's connected with our compulsive desire. That belief structure says, if only I have this, then in some ways I will be happy. If only I could change my job. If only I had the right relationship. If only my relationship would be different. If only my job would be different. If only I could afford a house. If only, it's sometimes called the, the if only syndrome. It's, it, and there's some sense that this would really satisfy my deep, deepest urgings, my deepest longings. The core teaching here is that the deepest happiness doesn't have to do with satisfying desires. That the deepest well-being and the deepest happiness is, as it were, a kind of birthright of our being. (coughs) And it comes from touching our deeper nature. And to touch that deeper nature, we in some ways have to let go of this compulsive desire. In the Chinese classic, the Tao Te Ching, it says, one who tastes the Tao is one whose mind and heart are unclouded by longing. Or un, we could say, maybe to translate it more precisely, unclouded by that compulsive wanting. And so we're invited, really, to look uh, carefully at the nature of wanting, to study it when it comes up, to name it. You know, what we, what we do with all of these difficulties are really a series of steps. The first is really to be mindful of it, just to know that it's happening. We can just say, wanting. We can just notice that that's happening. Wanting, desiring, greed. We begin to be aware of that and just know what that's like in the mind. Secondly, we begin to study its nature. And one of the really interesting things about this practice is that more and more we start developing a kind of openness and curiosity about that which prevents us from seeing clearly and having an open heart. We don't take them after a while so much as problems. And to that extent, the word hindrance and obstacle can be misleading because I think ultimately we take them as just part of our nature that sometimes arises like that. So I think we, be, in a way we become friends with these difficulties. You know, it's like they become something that we can be familiar with and say, oh, yeah, it looks like I'm a little bit deluded today. Oh, it looks like I'm kind of compulsively grasping today. You know, I think of one of the people who's very inspiring in that way is the Dalai Lama. I don't know if people have been around the Dalai Lama, but he's very interesting because he has this very, very open consciousness about being with times that he uh, doesn't do things perfectly. And I, I remember I was at one of his talks and he, he went through the talks and he said, you know, he went through the first point, he went through the second point, he went through the third point, and then he jumped to point five and he was, he was elaborating point five and then all of a sudden he realized, oh, I skipped point four. Oh, I made a big mistake. Ha ah! <laughs> ha And the whole... That there was such warmth in the room because he was he was delighted that he had made a mistake. 
And it was actually kind of fun for him and interesting. And that's the kind of spirit that we, I think, want to have in relation to these difficulties. Oh, look, there's desire. Oh, what kind of flower is that? Well, let me look at it. It's really having an attitude of openness towards that which is difficult. We call these uh, hindrances the difficult energies. Uh, I learned a lot about this quality of being able to be open to uh, difficulties uh, about uh, two years ago when, as part of my um, advanced uh, spiritual training, I enrolled in the uh, Clown School of San Francisco. And I became, uh, I was in a six-month performance class that had, for those of you who know San Francisco, we had our final, I did, I developed a, um, a seven-minute skit. My name, my uh, clown name is uh, Garbanzo Bean. And I actually uh, brought along my, my nose. I always, I, this, I'm revealing parts of myself, but I've, I've, I always carry this around with me. And at, at certain moments, I have given Dharma talks as Guru Gurbanzabin. One of my main um, ways of communicating spiritual truth is to um, be open to questions and to um, give no guarantee that the responses will be at all satisfactory. But that's maybe maybe later in the retreat. <laughs> so, but one thing I found in doing this clown work. And has anyone else done clown work? Oh, a little bit. Oh, very good. Um, one of the things I found is that to be a, cl- a good clown, you have to be able to somewhat revel. Is that right? Re- revel? Revel? Revel. You have to revel in your own <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> and so... And it really develops this very different attitude, so-called mistakes. It develops this very different attitude towards the places where one has difficulties. Because what we do, you know, like the first thing we did in clown training was, or one of the first things, we had to develop our clown walk. What you do to develop your clown walk is you walk across um, a room doing your normal walk with a crowd of people uh, watching you. And they point out what looks funny about your walk. It's pretty intense, actually, as you can imagine. And in fact, when, when we did this first training, there were actually two people who dropped out because it was too intense to have people comment about how they walked. Um, it takes a certain amount of maturity to, to be a fool. <laughs> and we're invited to be fools in this practice. I'm waiting till the second day to reveal that to you. Uh, and so what, uh, what, so people pointed out, I mean, I have this wire on, I don't know if I can really do my clown walk very well, but we'll see what I can do. But basically, when I, walk, when I did my walk, uh, my uh, right arm didn't move quite as much as my left arm, you know, kind of the swinging of the arms, and I was, I had my head inclined just a little bit forward, and I think there were a few other things that I did also that they pointed out. And what we're, we're, what we're asked to do in clown work is to look at our own weirdnesses, exaggerate them, and make them public. And so, see if I can do this without messing up the tape. 
towards one. So. <laughs> I've always wanted to teach uh, walking meditation with my clown walk. And maybe we can do that again maybe later in the retreat. But um, the, the point here is that uh, there's something about our practice which does have us becoming familiar with ways that seen from the outside might be problems or maybe in our past conditioning might be problems. And that's really the spirit of working with these difficulties or hindrances that we, we, we sort of get curious about them and maybe ultimately we even embrace them. Oh, I have a lot of desire. Oh, I have a lot of compulsive desire. Okay, let me look at it. Let me study it. Let me see what makes it tick. And then ultimately, yeah, I'm a person with a lot of compulsive desire. It's there because of causes and conditions, probably way out of my control, right? Because of my family, my culture, past experiences, whatever. And we develop a certain amount of equanimity towards, towards things that are dif- actually difficult for us. And it, it's very, very healing, isn't it? I mean, you can, can get a sense of it. It's, you know, it's, uh, and that's partly what we do here by, in this first instance, just naming, oh, there's compulsive desire. Oh, I'm attached to this. Oh, I had this meditation sitting and, and I was, felt very peaceful and then I'm kind of compulsively trying to make it happen the next sitting. And we say, oh, desire to recreate meditative state. Oh, I find myself um, in the dining hall and I really liked what they served and I think I'm totally full but I'm going to have some more. Maybe, I don't know if anyone's looking but, you know, and so on. <laughs> Right? And we just notice, oh, let me look at that. Let me see what that's about. So we, first of all, we name it. We say um, there's, uh, um, this is what's happening. We can start to inquire into what's it feel like, just like we do with, as I was describing, with the emotions. We can actually say, what does compulsive desire feel like? What's it feel like in the body? What's it, what's it like in the mind? And then we can also sometimes say, ask a question, is there something that's deeper than this uh, desire? You know, and we can a- actually ask. Sometimes we can feel our bodies and say, okay, I'm having these repetitive thoughts, let's say in the dining hall, about wanting this. Okay, can I feel whether there's something deeper? Can I feel my body and say, is there something deeper than this? Because sometimes there's a sense of lack or a sense of, I'm not good enough, and this makes up. In the, in the way that we, I think we're crystal clear about, right, when we have an emotionally difficult day and we find ourselves headed to the refrigerator or to, toward to have ice cream or whatever. You know, we each do it individually. Right? We each, but that's, it's sort of a, a version of that, that we can actually, when we look deeper, we can actually see that there's often some sense of lack or some sense, something deeper that's driving the compulsive desire. In daily life, we can also, uh, we can also um, sometimes, as a challenge, go into areas where we might feel some desire. That's kind of advanced practice, to, to actually put ourselves in situations and then watch our desire. A few years ago, I had a lot of fun. Myself and um, my colleague Diana Winston taught a class called um, uh, Greed Management. Um, in the Bay Area. We taught this uh, class on greed management and we had a final exam. We went to a newly opened uh, store at that time, which was in, some of you know the area, in El Cerrito, which was a new 
Bed, Bath and Beyond Superstore. And we, uh, our final exam was to do 30 minutes of silent walking meditation in Bed, Bath and Beyond. <laughs> <laughs> and then to come back and report to the group uh, what was happening. And what was this about? This was about watching desires. You know, and what's interesting about a store like that, I had never been in a store, I had never been in that store before. And you, you go in and they have um, ways to fulfill a thousand needs that you never knew you had. <laughs> you know, so I found myself contemplating, yeah, I really could use uh, an extra shelf um, on top of my television set so I can store some more things there. And it's about watching desires. So you can sometimes put yourself in those kind of situations and actually say, oh, let me look at that. You know, uh, you can go to some place that stirs desires and, and watch it. It's, it's advanced practice and tricky practice, so be careful. We all did okay at Bed Bath & Beyond. No one, we actually had a guideline that you couldn't buy anything. <laughs> Although a number of people were back later. <laughs> so that's the first quality. And I think you get a sense. All the qualities will be similar ways of working with them. You can... Uh, apply mindfulness, you can study the phenomena, you can look more deeply, you can try to um, find ways of working with it in daily life. Here, what's important to do is to name it, see what it's like, and the, the, um, those are ways to work with it in terms of mindfulness. There, uh, maybe I'll just mention a few other ways in terms of desire. One is, in daily life or on a retreat, is to um, cultivate some kind of moderation. You know, it's to, to um, you know, one, th- one uh, guideline that I do on retreat is I take a kind of a vow not to eat when I'm full, which is very powerful. You know, if we, if we uh, did that at home, life would be very different probably. Most of us eat in large part for, you know, whatever, whatever this longing is that needs to be satisfied, right, by certain sense experiences, right? It's... it's it's actually fascinating when you look deeply at it. And so I take this vow, which is kind of like a vow of moderation. And you, might, you might be interested in doing something like that. And it's very powerful. For those of you who are interested in uh, losing weight, it's also quite helpful for that. We don't advertise retreats as ways to lose weight, but it's actually quite possible. But you mostly have to do longer retreats. So You might want to sign up for some longer retreats. Um, so the second uh, of the difficult energies is the quality of aversion, or the quality which which manifests in a number of different ways. You know, it manifests as irritation. It manifests as ill will. It can manifest as uh, fear, or hatred, or judgment. Um, and I wanted to read the description of anger, which is one of the one of the manifestations of aversion. This is uh, Ruth Gindler on anger. Anger sharpens kitchen knives at the local supermarket on the last Wednesday of the month. His face is scarred from adolescent battles. He has never been very popular. His reputation as a fighter dates back to seventh grade. Children never understand how anger arrives at the house just in time for dinner. We never hear him ring the bell. All of a sudden he is there. 
As soon as my son hears his footsteps, he is running for shelter underneath the twin bed in the guest room. Anger is trying to gain truths, friendship, and respect. Anger is a meticulous reporter. He is accurate about details and insistent about the facts. He never lies, but he rarely understands anyone else's point of view. It is true that sharp knives work better than dull knives. They are also safer. A cut from a dull knife takes a long time to heal. However, if you have not used a sharp blade for a while, it is easy to hurt yourself. If you must ask anger to sharpen your bread knife, be careful how you handle it. He is not the only knife sharpener in town anymore. So partly here we're invited to look at the energies of aversion. We're asked to look at the different varieties of aversion. It could be aversion to sensation in our bodies. It's a very powerful way to look at aversion in, uh, on a retreat, is to see what it looks like when we have a knee pain. What does it look like when there's a pain in the back? And it actually can be very fascinating, especially when we know that the pain uh, is not going to cause any harm. There can be incredible illumination of the sort of thing that uh, David was pointing to in his questions when he pointed to the distinction between the sensation and then the massive proliferation of aversion around the sensation. And that's what we're invited to investigate with aversion. We're really invited to use the same kind of tools as I was describing with compulsive desire. We're invited to see, first of all, to name that there's aversion happening. So it's very helpful. We're just sitting here and we're uncomfortable and we don't like it. We just make the mental note aversion. We note that there's aversion. We see if we can actually let go of aversion, first of all, and just be present with the sensation. If we can't let go of the aversion, then we study it. We say, okay, there's aversion happening. What is aversion like? This is hard work, right? Because we have deep, deep conditioning not to want to be with unpleasant phenomena, whether they're physical or whether they're emotional. And the work with this second uh, difficult energy is to learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. It's a significant part of this practice because so much of our conditioning comes from the fact that we do not want to be with what is uncomfortable, physically, emotionally, and of course, culturally, we live in a, in a culture which goes to great lengths to find comfort. So it's deep in our conditioning. You know? I mean, and those of you who've traveled in third world countries know that you can, you can know how attached we are to comfort, right? If you've been, if you've been in whatever... Central or South America or Asia or even, you know, when I, I, I did a bunch of traveling about 10 years ago in Eastern Europe, I traveled in the Soviet Union before it was, before it, it collapsed. You know, and just something like in the former Soviet Union, you could not find toilet paper. The, what they had was extremely rough and coarse. And just a simple thing like that was a big deal. You know, and people were uncomfortable, you know, and, and it's like that. We discover how much we have this highly, uh, what, um, 
pampered life, maybe. Maybe it's a way to say it. And that is not conducive to liberation because there's a lot of attachment there, there's a lot of aversion there. And what we get to do is to study it. And again, some kind of uh, moderation can be very helpful in our lives so that we, we are, that we live a little more simply maybe, that we, we um, notice the things where there's aversion. We learn how to be present with what's unpleasant. It's a very significant uh, ability for our relationships because the inability to be with unpleasant emotions like, like uh, anger or fear in relationships makes it very hard for us actually to communicate because what typically happens when we go into aversion, we go into very automatic behavior. And so the ability to actually be present in a relationship, let's say, whether it's an intimate relationship or a work relationship, and say something like, I'm feeling anger now. This is what's going on for me. And to actually not um, speak out of aversion is an incredible tool. You know, that, was, that was uncomfortable for me. That was unpleasant. But to not have aversion and to speak about that uh, in a situation makes it possible for there actually to be some kind of communication and possibly healing rather than just a war for me to get my way. Rather than just a conflict based on my compulsive aversion. And I think if we look at our relationships, uh, again, different kinds, whether at home or at work, we can see the way that we are often driven by very strong aversion as as well as very strong attachment. And so our practice here is to find ways to um, find ways to be present with it, to name it, to look more deeply into it, to see what's there. What's behind our aversion? What's behind our anger? What's behind our irritability? In some ways, it's an inability actually to be present with something difficult. And so we often want the, we want the stimulus to go away. Let's see if I have this quotation. Um, I think I remember it. Um, James Baldwin once said, I believe that the reason that people want to keep on hating is because if they actually looked at their own hate, they would see that there's pain beneath it that they don't want to deal with, and they would have to deal with their pain. It's like the story of the, sec- of the two arrows. When we have something difficult, we want to get rid of it and we tend to react and shoot the second arrow. When we look and study our own patterns of aversion, we are learning how not to shoot the second arrow. And so it's a very important part of our practice. The third quality is called, through its Victorian translation, sloth and torpor. But I think you know what that means. It's basically the, there really are, are maybe two qualities pointed to. Sloth is different than torpor. And probably no one has used either of those words since about 1900. <laughs> uh, but um, sloth has to do with a quality of not being able to put out energy. Of Sometimes we might talk about it as 
laziness. It probably is not fair to the actual sloth, if any of you are a biologist. <laughs> the sloths are probably these great creatures who actually are not like they're made out to be. But, but the qualities that are associated with sloth and torpor have to do with a, sense, a feeling of laziness. I don't want to do it. It may be a feeling of being sleepy all the time, which arises in meditation. It can have be a sense of a lack of energy. It can be, can be a sense like there's just this fog around my mind. It's just I'm, I'm sitting here and I just feel, mmm. I feel like I'm, that's, that's the thick pea soup that I spoke about at the beginning. It may feel like a lack of concentration. It may be reflected in uh, sometimes humorous ways that when we're doing walking meditation and we're saying lifting as we're actually placing our foot down or we're, we're saying lifting, moving, placing and we have it totally out of sync. Has that occurred to you? <laughs> it's interesting. Or we might be doing, we might be saying in, out and we might be saying in with the out breath and out with the in breath. Or we might be doing, I don't know if we've done enough metta but when I, when I do a lot of metta I sometimes find myself, rather than my usual phrases, I get my mind gets totally confused and I, I start saying things, like one thing I found myself saying on this last retreat, my first phrase is, may I be happy and contented. And I found myself saying, may I be happy and cemented. <laughs> Which was kind of like, you know, made me think about criminal syndicates or something in some swamp in New Jersey. <laughs> you know, or... or um, I would say, may I be uh, safe and free from harm, and it, it would turn out as, may I be safe and free from form. <laughs> or uh, one of my friends used reported that she often used to say in her metta, may I be free from something. <laughs> and so it's actually, you know, we can actually find ourselves, our minds just being just kind of muddled, you know. We sometimes, the technical term for that is a, it's a meta-muddle. And our minds just get uh, muddled sometimes. And there really are a few different causes for sloth and torpor. One of them that's uh, quite possible is that we actually need rest. Uh, but more frequently, there are other kinds of uh, reasons for, being, uh, for, for having this low level of energy or being foggy. Um, one of them is that there's just can be a fairly low level of concentration. We're at an early stage in developing concentration and we're just foggy and that's the way, that, you know, it's just part of how we are. There's often that sense when we may begin a retreat that we may be, that we may be like that. Um, sometimes there's uh, an imbalance of the concentration and the energy. We may... Um, have a lot of energy, but our concentration may be very low, and that leads to a quality of um, feeling muddled or feeling tired. Occasionally, we can be feel um, foggy and lack, lack of energy, sometimes when there's resistance to actually feeling something in our experience. Sometimes that sloth and torpor can hide a quality of not wanting to face something in our experience, almost on an unconscious basis. And so that's, that's important to know as well. What do you do with sloth and torpor? There actually are a long list of things to do. It's one of the 
one of the difficult energies that has received the most commentary. <laughs> and so what do you do with sloth and torpor? The first thing you do is you name it, which is hard to do when you're in the midst of sloth and torpor. You sit there saying, sloth and torpor, <laughs> or something like that. But you, to actually name it is very significant. That's, that's, what we base, that's the first step with all of these difficult energies. You name them. And that opens the door. You know, it's like, I think, I think it was Camus who said once, when, essentially when a, slave, when, a, when a slave names its master, it's on the way to being free. And there's something about that with these difficult energies. When you start naming that which makes clarity and open heart difficult, it's a very significant step towards working through that energy. So you name, you know, you just name sleepiness when it's happening. Then you can try to watch the sleepiness. And it's actually, maybe some of you have had this experience, but it's actually fascinating that you can actually bring mindfulness to being sleepy. And sometimes you can actually watch, especially where the causes of sleepiness are not a need for rest. You can actually watch that the mind will, at a certain point, it'll be like the clouds thin, the sleepiness goes away, all in two minutes. And so, but it's very hard to bring that awareness to watch, but it's something that's actually very important to do. So to try to bring the awareness to the sloth and torpor. Some other ways to work with being sleepy or not feeling so much energy. Sit up straight. Another thing you can do is don't move. Work with stillness. Work with being sitting up straight and work with um, not moving, you know, which is hard to do. And one teacher, uh, some of you know, named uh, Goenka, he works in some of his sittings where people take a vow not to move, sometimes for an hour, sometimes for two hours. It's an interesting practice to really say, you might try it for a while, I'd say, I am not going to move for half an, this half hour, let's say, or this 45 minutes. And you sit with whatever comes up. You can do it once, you know, maybe not all the time. Another way to work with sleepiness is to take deep breaths. You can also uh, walk energetically. If you're feeling tired, go outside and take a walk in which you really um, walk very energetically. Uh, you can do yoga. When Jack Kornfield was meditating in Thailand and he was sleepy, his teacher had him sit on the edge of a well that went down 50 feet. <laughs> so if anyone's interested, I'll tell you where the well is at Spirit Rock. And you can, but you have to sign a uh, liability form. I think, first. Um, something that also helps with sleepiness is moderation in eating. And really being... Be, actually, people sometimes tend to eat less as they, as they practice a lot. Um, in the traditional text it said that an antidote for sleepiness is reflection on death and reflection on the shortness of life the preciousness of life and you might you might do that sometime I mean sometimes that occurs spontaneously when we're practicing I mean I have sometimes found myself reflecting on death and thinking now is the last moment of my life. And what would it be like if I died right at this moment? 
And it's sometimes it can energize practice, as you might imagine, in, an, in a way that's not really morbid. But it, I, I found myself sometimes doing that quite spontaneously, that I would just feel like this is the last moment of my life, and I'd be like that for a few hours, you know, and just watch that. So, so that's another tool that's actually very good for, um, for energizing. It's, to refl- it's really, you know, another way to say it is you reflect on what's most important to you. You go back to the intention that you came to the retreat on. That's a way to say it without pointing towards reflection on death. The fourth of the difficult energies is restlessness and worry. And I think we know how that manifests. It manifests sometimes in the body feeling very restless, sometimes feeling very antsy. Has anyone felt antsy here sometimes when you sit? It's difficult, isn't it? You sit there and you're kind of feeling like you've got ants all over you. I guess that's why they call it antsy. Uh, never thought of that before. <laughs> Or you feel like you're, like you're, you're um, something's trying to crawl out of your skin at the extremes. You know, you can really feel, it can be very uncomfortable. Or it can manifest in the mind being very, very active and sort of out of control. Just worrying about this, worrying about that. Uh, being very restless, going over conversations over and over again. Going over certain uh, parts of our lives over and over again. So what do you do with with uh, restlessness or, or worry. Number one, huh? You, you note it. Yeah, you, la- you, tr- you label it. You note it. You see. You say, "This is what's happening right now." And and I know many of you are using this practice, but you can. It's amazing how powerful that simple label is. In daily life, it's just as powerful. Think of think of what would happen if when you're angry in some kind of relationship, at, you know, at work or at home, you simply say to yourself, I'm angry. And you know that you're angry. Often it can really shift the energy. Just because a lot of these difficult energies depend on unconsciousness for their efficacy. And so just the fact of labeling is incredibly important. It, part of our mind thinks that it's not important because it's not going to make it go away. So I think part of what we do here is we learn how to practice. We learn, oh, I can work with this, and the labeling has an effect. It doesn't necessarily make things go away, but it's a very significant step in working both in the short run and the long run. We can also... um, We can also study it. We can say, okay, I'm feeling restless. What's that feel like in the body? And we can sit back and watch what restlessness feels like. We can sit back and say, it does feel like ants. It's very uncomfortable. Or what does it feel like to have a mind that's really, really active, that's just happening? At a certain point, we can just say, okay, let me feel this. Let me see what this is like. Let me just sit here and watch what anxiety is like. Watch what uh, restlessness is like. Because the, the core way that we really work through these is that we become really, really familiar with all of them. Just like the Dalai Lama saying, oh, I made a mistake. It becomes like that. And we, we become so familiar that we say, oh, here's restlessness again. Hello. Here's anxiety again. And it's not such a big deal. And because we don't have resistance to it, nor aversion to it, it doesn't stay that long usually. But what, we, what our practice is about is to become really familiar with all these difficult energies. 
And so when it comes, we just say, hello, here again. We might say, I wish you weren't here again, but you are here again. Okay. Let's talk. <laughs> you know, and, and you just do what you need to do. Sometimes restlessness is caused by an excess of energy and not enough concentration. You can imagine, you know, the body is just filled up with energy and there's not enough concentration. In fact, this is a normal part of development and growth. And if you're, you know, especially you can feel it when you do uh, retreats, sometimes we come into a greater amount of uh, bodily energy and we don't have sort of the structure to handle it. And sometimes that can manifest as a lot of restlessness. And so what the antidote there is to do things which develop concentration, which would be to, it might be to work with the breath and count the breaths, you know, to count, count to ten with the breaths. It might be to do that which really helps concentration. It might be to sit up straight. It might be not to move. It might be to really be very precise with our noting. And if you're feeling that restlessness, you can work with to develop concentration in that way. The last of the difficult energies is doubt. And I'll read, I'll read uh, Ruth Gendler's personification of doubt. Doubt camped out in the living room last week. I told him that we had too many house guests. He doesn't listen. He keeps saying the same thing over and over again until I completely forget what I'm trying to tell him. He is demanding and not very generous, but I do appreciate his honesty. So doubt can be about all sorts of things. And the, uh, one of the reasons that doubt is likened to this muddy water is that doubt can be somewhat paralyzing. It's actually, in some ways, one of the most difficult of the energies because it's doubt which can sometimes stop us from practicing. If we continue to practice, we work with all of these but doubt can sometimes say, this isn't going anywhere. I should stop. Doubt sometimes says, I'm no good at this. Other people are good. I'm not good at this. I should change my spiritual path. I should take up. I should go over to the creativity retreat (laughs) and play trombones in the woods. The worst aspects of doubt are when we really doubt ourselves. We say, I'm not doing well, and the reason is because I'm not a good person. I'm a flawed person. I have this problem. And that kind of doubt can be extremely paralyzing. We might say, I'm not wise or loving. And the antidotes are similar to the other ones. What what we do when we have doubt is similar, but there are some other things as well. So the first measure is just to name it. There's doubt occurring. Secondly, it's to actually look at what it's about, to watch the doubt, to go more deeply into it. Classically, it's often said that the antidote to doubt is faith. It's faith that really helps us through rocky times. And so if there 
things which help you to develop faith. Those can be very useful. It might be to do reading. It might be to talk to a good friend. You know, in, the, in our context, it might be to um, um, ask a question, talk, talk to me. Maybe, maybe the talks can work on the, on the level of faith as well. Another way to work with doubt is to really tap into your own motivation, to see what really drives you, why you're here. And if you tap sometimes into that quality of deep motivation, it can often be something which tells you, okay, I'm doubting myself, but I know better. You know, I'm real, I know that pattern, and I don't want to doubt myself. And I'm here, and I'm committed to it, and I'm going to do it. And that can be something which can, can work through the doubt Sometimes it can be a reflection in a similar way on what's most important to really to say, this is difficult for me, I'm making, I have this doubt, but it's really important to me to, to work with it, to attempt to cut through the doubt. With all of these difficult energies, you see there's similar patterns. Partly it's to name them, Partly it's to investigate them. Partly it's to develop a repertoire of two or three or four uh, ways to work through each of them. The main thing is to start to get very, very familiar with them, name them, so that after a while they're not so much a big deal. You know, so you're just feeling like... About a year, about uh, three years ago, where I was, um, I don't know, I was, I was doing about two months on retreat, and I was about five or six weeks into it. And one morning, I, was, um, I hadn't slept well, I was very irritable, my mind was wild, and it was utterly no problem at all, and I was totally content. It was like there was something larger that could hold the difficult energy. That there was something more basic. For me, it was almost like the space of awareness can get large, so that it's like the Dalai Lama. Oh, I make a mistake. Ha, ha, ha. No problem. Or, oh, I'm totally out of it, but I'm happy. And for me, that comes from familiarity a lot of familiarity with each of these difficult energies. So familiar that we also begin to see that there's something larger than the difficult energies, that there's the space of awareness starts to be seen and felt as something that's larger, that carries that energy of clear seeing, of the wisdom, the compassion, the courage that we talked about yesterday. And within that larger sense of awareness we can be present, I think, as the Buddha could be, or as Eddie Hillison could be, or I think as we all are in our best moments. We could be present with what's difficult, and it's no longer, as it were, um, a three-alarm fire, that it becomes something workable. And that's really the spirit of practice, is to make our difficulties workable. To have that perspective, to have concrete techniques, and in the practice, as they become workable, we, in a way, we purify ourselves. We work through, we transform 
by touching the difficult energies and moving towards that larger sense of awareness and love. And it's another way to look at what we do here. So with that, I'll, I'll stop. Thank you.